0: Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? hello and welcome to serial killing a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community as always special thanks to some of my patrons john my girl judy david brie brandy cassandra galen gabrielle Emily, Emma, Nanette, Sophie, Sarah, Teresa, Florence, Robert, Katarina, Hammer, Janice, Freddie, Sam, Arcadia, and Catherine. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. So today's podcast will be on the Australian cult, The Family. And as with any cult, there is a cult leader, and the leader of The Family was a woman named Anne Hamilton Byrne. Part two, getting into the actual cult activities of the family. So let's get back into it. If you haven't seen part one, I highly suggest you go back and watch it. And I will leave a link to that in the notes below. So Anne Hamilton's sermons made up the majority of the family's doctrine. She would tell them things like, I'm looking right at each one of you. You are the initiate. You are the cosmic being. You're staring into the awakening. This is the moment of rebirth on a new planet. We've received the call and great things will be done. End quote. You see, Anne stressed the need to be unwaveringly loyal, strong, discreet, of course, and dedicated. She said, quote, It is a call to that which is very noble in us. Nobody wants to be in anything they haven't earned. My mother's teacher, and her mother never had a teacher, was a great friend who led her to become the person that she was. And mother always said, her teacher always said that those who are in earnest, fixed upon God, would go forward. Find the kingdom and help every other living thing. We have the great adventure open before us with life itself as our initiator. We don't know the divine until we find it. Remain humble, true, strong, loving, and gentle. All the mystics down the ages and all the modern mystics tell the same story. Strong, sure, and silent. End quote. So during all of this, Ann met a man named Bill Byrne. She was separated from Michael by this point and Bill was so blown away by her. He actually left his wife to be with Ann and interesting to note, Bill's wife May was forcibly committed to a sort of drug rehab psychiatric place and eventually she agreed to divorce Bill. They married and she became Ann Hamilton Byrne This would be the name she would forever be known by. And her following grew pretty quickly, and she would tell the new pledges that, quote, humanity is in its final karmic cycle, after which there would be no further reincarnation, end quote. And they accepted her as the literal Christ who would take into herself their sins, thus paying their karmic debt. In return for her martyrdom, she asks only for complete and total obedience, right? She titled herself, quote, the master, according to the book Anne Hamilton Byrne and the Family by Carol Cusack from the University of Sydney. Anne said, quote, I had to start it. It was divine orders. That was my mission. That was the divine vision. She and the top-tier followers began speaking of the end of the world, ruling the world, having the perfect world, and how everyone who didn't fit into their niche weren't going to survive. Journalist Gerard Ryle, a regular writer about the family, wrote, quote, The Living Master, or Anne Hamilton Byrne, was the very center and soul and substance of the Way of Salvation laid down by the Supreme Father. Without the love and help of the Living Master, no soul could ever be liberated from the material world. Sect members believed that Anne Hamilton Byrne could stop the endless reincarnations they were locked into members were obliged to do only what they think their master will approve. Then essentially, it is the master acting, not the discipline, end quote. The founding people of this cult set it up so that people that came to her with broken families, death of loved ones, mental issues that more often stemmed from drug or alcohol abuse due to sexual abuse, absent parents, deep spiritual yearnings, and so on. One former member stated that he went through a period where he would have quite literally died for Anne due to being under LSD or shrooms. While tripping, he said that they were able to regress through their life and back into past lives. And this was a clearing out of things of the past, but you had to go to Anne to get the clearing. We know this today, minus the hallucinogens as regression therapy and there are some similarities to this and the Church of Scientology. This progressed into the family's motto, quote, unseen, unheard, unknown, end quote, which meant that membership to this cult was both secret and represented election to a spiritual elite for members. The upper echelon of the local society introduced and to lawyers, teachers, doctors, and other very affluent professional people. You see, medical professional connections were vital to Anne so that she would be able to get LSD for these initiations, as they called them. And again, they also took shrooms, or what they called sacred manna, and the children who were brought into the group were not immune. So let's get into that. Now, Anne's new husband, Bill, was wealthy, He was also a member of the local council and, as I had mentioned, had a previous wife and four children. The rehab or mental health facility he sent his wife to would administer LSD to patients and other cult members who also had been sent there for what she called clearings. These people were deprived of food, sleep and kept in pitch dark rooms. It was actually stated on the site rescuethefamily.com that many other people never recovered from the sheer heavy doses of LSD they were given. She told them to not eat at least two days a week, to sit quietly for an hour a day and reduce their thoughts to a vanishing point. She even told them she often fasted for three week stints. as she gained followers, so did she gain their money. The old tried and true of having people donate to the cause and because most of these people were middle to upper middle class and even some more elite, she amassed a small fortune. So she was now in her late forties to early fifties and with Bill at her side and decided to act upon something she had been wanting to do for a very long time build her own family. She began trying to convince followers that she was pregnant, even wearing maternity clothing, but this of course was not true. She was unable to get pregnant because she had actually had a hysterectomy, but she was able to convince them or most of them and stated her having child after child was about the quote, next generation. She said they were the most vulnerable most trusting, most easily influenced, and held the key to controlling the future. So here's a quote from Rainer during this time. Quote, This is perhaps the most amazing aspect of my master's work. Viewed as a piece of organization with devoted and sacrificial help, it is staggering in its outlook, yet... It was planned with consciousness of its magnitude and the great responsibility of this undertaking. It had to cover, say, 10 to 15 years before it could lead to success. Only a great master, equally at home in this world and the next, could have hoped to carry it through to a conclusion. It amounted to this. A group of children, some already born here, some yet to be born, were brought together, fostered and adopted and trained from the beginning of their lives in as perfect conditions as could be provided. Their health was meticulously supervised and all aspects of their welfare and education were considered and provided for. Before they came, it was known by the master when and where and to what parents they were coming and what qualities potentially they had brought with them from their past lives. It is safe to say the future age will see them, unknown though they are, as custodians and continuers of the work their master has set going in many parts of the world. End quote. So even though she somehow convinced her followers that she herself was giving birth to child after child, she actually acquired children through legal adoptions as well as illegal adoptions. She would also collect babies born out of wedlock or get teen mothers to hand their babies over. Some of the children were also handed over as unwanted due to physical or behavioral issues. She seemed to have achieved much of this through her ties with corrupt doctors, nurses, and social workers. Anne would then change their birth dates and names, giving them her name, Hamilton Byrne. She indeed falsified legal documents. She told people that she had given birth to twins, sometimes triplets. Most later stated they basically knew she was lying, but others believed her explicitly. Then, she would bleach the children's hair white blonde, cutting most of their hair into these strange bowl cuts, and would dress them nearly identically. She and her husband would gather the children and have photographs taken of themselves looking quite glamorous. One of those children, who is now obviously grown, said, quote, I grew up believing I was a twin of a girl who it would later be proved I wasn't even related to and we were of completely different ages. I was handed over at 18 months by my mother on the request of Anne. My mother was told she was looking after the property in Ferntree Gully. My father had already been sent over to England and the best possible life would be me being brought up at the idyllic property. At Lake Eldon, with Anne and Bill as my parents, my mother faded into the background and made no attempts to contact me End quote. "It is believed that she gathered 28 children, 14 of them she claimed to either be her biological children or her biological grandchildren. Former members of the family who were children said that she was at first a kind and loving mother figure, especially to the slightly older children who didn't have a mother figure or at least not a good one. For others, it gave them a sense of belonging. The children or babies were taken to a property northeast of Melbourne in the lush, beautiful forests of that area. There, they would be told that Ann and Bill were their natural parents, those children that they tried to convince everyone was actually theirs. The other kids were, in the documentary, The Cult of Family, referred to as foster children. Some of those children were most often children from other sect members who came on weekends, but some of the children stayed for a couple of years at a time. And as I stated before, the children were dressed nearly identical. Boys and girls' clothing were color-coordinated, but the boys all wore the same shirt, pants, and so on, and all of the girls wore the same matching dresses, shorts, what have you. Shoes were to be polished and shining, clothes ironed to perfection, And of course, Anne would not have been able to look after so many children, so other sect women would be assigned as aunties, some men, uncles, and they would help tend and raise the children. Also, during the later 60s and early 70s, Anne and Bill began buying properties overseas. One was in Kent, England, and it was pretty impressive, sprawling old estate. They also purchased property in the United States as well. Now, when Anne and Bill would travel overseas, the children would, of course, miss them. But when they would return home to Australia, the home movie cameras would begin to roll and they would create what was essentially propaganda footage to show what an idyllic life they had and how wonderfully happy these children were. These movies were, of course, used as part of Anne's recruiting process. But as I'm sure you have deduced, things were not what they seemed. Most of the adult followers were not aware of just what was going on with the children. The children were very much urged to not socially interact with anyone outside of the group. They were taught a very, you know, us versus them mentality. And that quickly turned into the children really not being seen by anyone, save Anne, Bill, and the aunties or uncles. The rest of the members of this cult would only see the children for very short periods of time for a singing performance and so on. Now, as for the aunties, several of the now grown children have been interviewed and have stated that they were starved, beaten, and other things much more intense and vile. They were awakened at 5.30 a.m. every single morning, homeschooled, seven days a week. There was daily yoga and meditation, not too bad, and the food they most often got was a plate of vegetables for lunch and then another for dinner. Not so good. They were given vitamins, thankfully. School study ended at 4 p.m., and then they all had to shower, do yoga, and meditation again, And then after their dinner, they would go do their homework and then it was off to bed. And that was their life with very little ever variation and really not time off for vacations. No, no, none of that. And then there were the drugs given to the children, powerful drugs such as Valium among others, including tranquilizers. And they were given these twice a day. Some of the children as young as eight nine years old, were also dosed with LSD. One now grown child stated, quote, what I would do a lot is just sit on my bed and look out the window. I didn't move. I was in a catatonic state and I was also mute. I didn't speak for lengthy periods of time, end quote. So giving LSD to children. So let's take a quick look at that. LSD is a pretty commonly known, widely used hallucinogenic drug. This drug and others that fit under this umbrella cause a person to see vivid images, hear sounds, and feel sensations that seem real but aren't. LSD in particular is colorless, odorless liquid that has a slight bitter taste. Drops of it can be put on just about anything edible sugar cubes, blotter paper, what have you. The effects are unpredictable and depend on how much is taken, the person's mood, expectation, and overall personality. It usually kicks in after about a half hour or so and can last up to 12 hours. It causes dilated pupils, increased body temperature, increased heart rate and blood pressure, sweating, loss of appetite, Sleepiness and dry mouth, according to the University of Michigan Health Children's Hospital site. It also causes changes in sensations and feelings, as in the person might feel several different emotions at the same time or rapidly swing between emotions. They usually confuse sensations and feelings hearing, and seeing things that simply are not there. In other words, visual delusions and hallucinations. And when a person experiences a bad trip, well, things get very, very ugly very quickly, including possible drug-induced psychosis. So just having that tiny basic overview right now, imagine a child as young as eight experiencing that, not knowing what's going on. An article written by Dr. Doris Milman from the Department of Pediatrics, State University of New York, titled, quote, an untoward reaction to accidental ingestion of LSD in a five-year-old girl, end quote. She stated that a five-year-old girl with an apparent normal premorbid personality and adjustment became acutely psychotic following a single accidental dose of LSD. She displayed behaviors such as agitation, panic, depression, and flattening of effect, disorientation, feelings of depersonalization, distortion of body image, and depression of intellectual functioning. In addition to that, she displayed evidence of organic brain dysfunction impaired visual motor and visual perceptual functions, and brain function abnormality of the electroencephalogram. Within days, most of these issues went away, but the thinking disorder, distortion of the body image, and depression of intelligence persisted for several months. At the end of nine months, only the visual motor functions remained impaired. So, you see the potential issue with giving young children LSD and other such hardcore drugs. So, of course, as far as discipline goes, the punishments were also pretty severe. If they misbehaved, they were pretty severely beaten, most often with belts had their fingers held over an open candle flame, had their heads held down in a bucket of water until they nearly drowned, or food was withheld for as long as three days, depending on the offenses. But on a rare occasion, they were denied food for one whole week. Controlling the children's food intake was exactly that, a large part of how they controlled the children. One woman, who was one of the children, said that the children got into trouble constantly for stealing food. She stated, quote, Weighing was a very serious business, particularly for us, because it was considered that we were putting on too much weight. We would have our food rations cut down. And that was a dreadful proposition. Food being the most important thing in our lives. We girls viewed the scales with hatred. They made our miserable lives even worse. Some of the girls would even try to induce vomiting on weighing mornings in an attempt to seem lighter. End quote. Some now grown children spoke about their initiation or going through the LSD trip as her experiencing intense fear, sleep deprivation verbal abuse while tripping, and a surgical doctor telling her that he would, quote, mix up your insides so you'll never be able to have children, end quote. All while on acid, guys. And of course, Anne was getting liposuction and other cosmetic procedures done regularly while she was nearly starving the children. One child in particular, due to the harsh environment she was being raised in, her growth hormones never released and she suffered from psychosocial dwarfism, which is a syndrome caused by emotional deprivation or maternal deprivation characterized by symptoms of delayed motor and intellectual development, abnormal eating and drinking habits, aggressiveness, involuntary urination and defecation, and so on. And I'm happy to report that once that child was eventually removed, she did manage to grow a slight bit. I love children. So the restriction of food was Anne's way of kind of forcing anorexia on them and they were malnourished most of the time. Some believe she did this because she had herself been what people considered a chubby child you know back in her younger years. Others believe she did this also to keep the children weak so that they weren't able to fight back for any particular issue. The commonality is that it was all about complete control. Now the media of course began reporting on the story of the family as they had seen it was quite the controversial group. And curiosity really began around 1980 when one member, Hans Halm, went to the authorities telling them he wanted to get custody of his 10-year-old daughter from her mother. He spoke about what he knew what was going on in that cult and a judge put out a warrant for that mother's arrest. Three years later, the mother and daughter were located, not in Australia, but in New Zealand. And yet, because this was deemed a domestic matter, quote unquote, no further investigation was conducted into the welfare of the other children within the cult. So as these children grew and got older, it became known that the Victorian Board of Education would only allow the children to be homeschooled through 10th grade. Meaning that once they were past that, they'd have to go to a more regular school. And then also as the children became teens, one in particular decided to invite another girl back to their house and she was subsequently kicked out for it. Luckily that girl found another girl who had actually successfully ran away and together they went to the police telling them everything that went on in that house. After this, the investigation began. Detectives began studying the religious sect and it became apparent rather quickly that it was a cult and that the members essentially believed Anne to be THE Jesus Christ. That World War III or a bunch of natural disasters combined would be nearly the end of human civilization and that she and her cult, along with her stolen children, would be there to build it up again. And sometimes she told the children that UFOs were going to come down and pick them up and they would just walk right into the crafts, you know, returning when the natural disasters or Armageddon was over. Stories from escaped now older children began coming in and they told stories of pretty horrific abuse. The withholding of food and being given mind altering drugs, including LSD, made the authorities spring into action. Now I'm not sure exactly how she found out, but one of the now grown children spoke about how Anne was always quite paranoid that someone on the outside of her circle was trying to kill her. She was always paranoid about that and she'd have everyone gather all of the records and documents and burn them. It was regular and it was frightening chaos to the children. In May of 1987, Rainer passed away at 86 years old. On August 14, 1987, at 6 a.m., the police and investigators busted into the very secluded home on Lake Eildon where the children were being kept. A search of the home uncovered holes that had been cut into closets for the children to climb through to hide, from anyone who might come into the house. And there was some sayings that there were tunnels under the house. Anne and the other caretakers told the children that they would have to hide in these spots because other people from the outside would hurt them. But thankfully, all of the children were removed from the home and put into foster homes. And yet no charges were announced against Anne or any other members of her cult. At first, no one even knew where she was, and certainly her cult members weren't forthcoming with that information. But it was obvious that she was still leading them via telephone. It took some time to actually locate her, but she was found to be in Hawaii. Once located, a journalist demanded Anne and Bill give their own account regarding what they were being accused of versus what people had now seen on the perfectly orchestrated home movies that had shown serenity and happy children. Predictably, the journalist received no answer. Now, after this, believe it or not, again, no criminal charges were brought against Anne, and things quieted for a bit. It was treated as a welfare issue, not a criminal one. But one of the investigators who had gathered an impressive amount of information refused to just let it get swept under the rug, so to speak. So he wrote a report stating that he recommended the family be investigated for criminal activity. After a few months in 1989, the investigator was given a small team of people and three months to complete their investigation they named this task force Operation Forest. So again, not knowing exactly where Anne was, they believed her to be in the UK in 1989. They then were told that she and Bill were in the US, basically a few different places, but never actually in Australia. So in 1990, the family had a lawyer named Peter Kibbe, who was previously caught for producing a false statutory declaration kind of decided to work with Operation Forest. Soon after, two members of the cult were charged with drug offenses. This escalated to Anne and Bill being located in Hurleyville, New York, and they were arrested there. They were then extradited from the United States and escorted back to Australia. Family members, hearing this news, gathered together to try to figure out a way to defuse the growing tension of the situation. A trial was set for November 1993, and keep in mind that, at this point, Anne was 72 years old. Unfortunately, the only thing they were able to convict them for were minor offenses. Both Ann and Bill were ordered to pay $5,000 worth of fines each. Some of the aunties and uncles were charged with social security fraud. That was it. The investigator who had fought so hard to try to get justice for these children he had saved carried with him a sense of failure as well as guilt. According to ResearchGate.net, Ann made several subsequent media appearances. She told the Australian Broadcasting Commission that she had never used drugs and was not a religious or spiritual teacher, but merely taught yoga and worked. She insisted that, with regards to the children, that she and Bill had taken them in out of the goodness of their hearts and that many of the children had been handicapped when they arrived. Now, some former members state that the children who are saying they were basically imprisoned and severely abused were led into, quote, false memory syndrome by psychologists after the raid, end quote. Still others on the other side of the fence state that the, quote, illegal medical experimentation was comparable to Nazi Germany. So whatever became of Anne and Bill and the rest of the cult? Well, there are stories that there are cult members still very much involved in the rituals or behaviors they so cherished from years ago, others escaped and feel deep shame for having allowed themselves to be controlled in such a way. Bill died in 2001. Anne was admitted to a care home diagnosed with dementia in 2004. She would have been 83 years old by then. Of course, one of her devoted followers says she does not have dementia, but rather she is living in Christ consciousness. Yes, my friends, Christ consciousness. She would be seen holding a baby doll and cradling it gently. So there's that. In 2014, the secret diaries of Rainer Johnson were released to the public that gave a lot more insight into the family and its beginnings. In 2016, the family documentary was released, and you can actually watch that on YouTube. You can see the now-grown children's interviews, snippets of old home movies, and so on, and I'll leave a link to that down in the notes. Anne Hamilton Byrne died in June 2019 at 97 years old, not really being completely held accountable for the horrific things that she, at the very least, did to those stolen children as well as the minds of her followers. You see, what we have here is a woman who traded on her good looks and charisma, charming personality to hold sway over and influence a growing group of people. Most all say that the men of the group were infatuated with her, most often referring to her as an enchantress. The children who were thankfully rescued, unfortunately, still deal with the scars left from what they endured. The psychological impact on all involved was vast, with many still very much struggling with PTSD, anxiety depression, and more, and I found some sources stating a couple ended their own lives. One survivor said, quote, we were deeply affected by each other's abuse. It was because of that empathy for each other, even though we hadn't been given any from the adults, we managed to arrange it so that we had empathy from each other. I think that's the only way we survived. We survived because we were all together, end quote. All right, guys, tell me, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can always email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much and have a great day.